You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Ethan Cross, who is a professor of psychology at the University of Michigan, and also the author most recently of this book, Chatter, The Voice in Our Head and Why It Matters and How to Harness It. So Ethan, we, we were just talking about how your interest in psychology is kind of motivated by, I guess it's an interest in philosophy, right? Your assertion that philosophy and, and psychology are are related. And it seems to me that your work does have a theoretical element, which is super powerful, but there is this practical element. And you even end the book with a bunch of tools which were embedded in the narrative of the book, which are kind of like takeaways. And it made me think that in today's world, the clinical psychology is becoming much more rooted in a scientific understanding of the brain and of the mind than it may have been in the past, right? In the past, it may have just been, let's just try stuff out and see what works. Whereas now it's motivated by a deep understanding of the mechanisms. So maybe just kind of tell us what drew you to the field of, of psychology and in particular, the topics that you cover in Chatter. First of all, thanks for having me on the show. And it is a delight to be here with a former Quaker, no less. Maybe we'll get into that. Some of our common educational roots. So what drew me to psychology? There are multiple forces. I'll give a, a few of them to you. Number one, I didn't realize it at the time, but growing up, I spent a ton of time talking to my dad about psychology and philosophy. My dad wasn't a philosophy or psychology professor. He actually wasn't a college grad, but he loved reading about Eastern philosophy in particular, about the mind and its relation to the body. And he would talk to me about whatever he read beginning around the time I was three years old. There's an interesting phenomenon when you're a kid and your parents talk about things to you and sometimes you listen, oftentimes you try to ignore it, but those things they say to you have a way of seeping into your consciousness. And some of those conversations really resurfaced that I had with my dad when I was in college and drew me to take my first intro to psych class. When I took that class, I became really fascinated by this conundrum of, of introspection, which is we know that the capacity to reflect on ourselves and our lives is an amazing, I'm going to use the term superpower because I think it is. It is a feature of the human mind that distinguishes us from other species and it is unquestionably one of the features of the mind that has made us so incredibly successful. Our ability to turn our attention inward, make sense of what we're going through, solve problems and so forth. And so on the one hand, we have this amazing tool. But on the other hand, I learned about lots of research which showed that this tool also is the source of enormous suffering. When we have problems, we turn our attention inward, we end up getting stuck in negative thought loops, we ruminate, we worry, we catastrophize, all the things that are incredibly common to, I think, most of us, right? We experience this at time. And so why is that, right? We have this capacity, but it seems unwieldy. Sometimes it helps us, but other times it harms us. That was a giant puzzle to me. And it simultaneously got me really interested in just wanting to understand the mechanics of the human mind. I liked watching Star Trek when I was growing up, and I, I think it was Star Trek, The Final Frontier. I really began to think about the mind and the brain as this unexplored territory that we knew so little about. And I wanted to figure out, hey, what are the tools that I can use to make sense of how this human mind works? So that was intriguing to me on the one hand. I have also always had an orientation towards wanting to ultimately whatever I do, 
do it in the service of some greater good to try to help folks. That was actually another conversation I had growing up with my dad quite a bit. Whatever you do, make sure it helps society, people in some way and infinite ways you could do that. But so I've always had an applied focus to what I do as well. And the thought was, well, if we could better understand how the mind works when it comes to our emotions and how to control our emotions, then we can potentially use that knowledge to help people control their emotions in their daily lives. And so fast forward to the present, the way I get interested in new work in my lab, I run a lab at Michigan called the Emotion and Self-Control Lab. My students and I ask ourselves, does this work have the potential to, if successful, really move the needle in terms of our understanding of how the mind and brain work? And or does this work we're thinking about doing have the potential to really help people in some consequential way? And if, if a question we're considering meets either or both of those criteria, we usually do it. If it doesn't, we don't. So that was part of the way I got interested in psychology. I guess the other piece was I've always been interested in religious studies and Eastern philosophical practices in particular. And I minored in that topic in college. And as I started taking psych classes, I also started learning about different religious traditions and the emphasis that many of those traditions placed on emotions and, and regulating the mind. And I saw in psychology the opportunity to bring empiricism to the study of the human mind as it's often treated in religion. And so that got me to grad school and where I am today. Mention your father. I was thinking about my father as well and my mother when I was reading this book because all of us have certain pithy phrases that we carry around, right, from our parents. And I was thinking about how I transmit them onto my relatives. Eat the old before the new or don't go out empty-handed or whatever. And I have these like little things, these little memes that circulate in my brain. And, and then I'm, I'm in the job of diffusing them. Yeah. And they're all kind of these little nuggets of practical wisdom or these little nuggets of like, don't forget to do this. And, and of course, if you've ever done sports, you have your coach, the words of your coach, like relax on the swing or whatever. And you'll hear them in your head when you're, you're actually out there on the field doing stuff. But that's just a bit of an aside. Maybe we'll get into that. But you know, the title chatter, it's a bit pejorative, right? It's kind of saying, look, there's this phonological loop that you're living through, right? There's all of this introspection that's happening, but the word chatter is sort of a, a negative connotation. And the book is actually, I think, a little more subtle than that, right? It's really all about trade-offs. It's all about the pros and the cons or the, the application and the misapplication, right? And trying to design sort of trade-offs, we really have to dig into the why, right? And what I love about so much contemporary research in psychology is that we're now we're really digging into functionality. We're thinking about why. We're not just saying, okay, here's all these dysfunctions. We had a course I remember as an undergrad that I took was called abnormal psychology. And it was just pathologizing all of these things. And I think your work is very much more subtle. It's saying, listen, everything we have here exists for a reason. So let's dig into that a little bit. What is the default state of our mind of attention? How does this introspection work? Why is it all about words, right? Why do we live in this kind of soup of words? Well, I just want to emphasize before digging into that, that I completely agree. So I'm glad that you took that away from the book. The fact that there are two sides to the inner voice, helpful and harmful. And chatter is certainly the negative variety. But one take home I, I really tried to emphasize was that you don't want to get rid of this inner voice because it can do all these wonderful things to you. And I think it's a real tragedy that many people, when they're suffering, I mean, they've asked me directly, people, how can I just silence this inner voice, get rid of it? And given the amazing things it does for you, that is not what you'd want to do. 
So let's break all this down. We often hear that it is useful to live in the moment. This is talk about memes. That's a, a pretty popular one over the past 10 or 15 years. The human mind was not designed to be in the moment at all times. And that's okay, actually. The ability to travel in time in our mind is another one of these amazing capacities that we possess. So we spend between one half and one third of our waking hours not focused on the present, drifting off into space, into the future, into the past, thinking about our lives. And some neuroscientists and psychologists refer to this as our default state. When you have nothing else to do, you kind of just drift away. Now, whereas many people think that this is sometimes not optimal because you're not engaged in the moment, I'd love listeners to just think about what mental time travel allows us to do. It allows us to simulate and plan for the future. It allows us to fantasize about the future. I just booked my first family vacation in two and a half years. We're going to Hawaii. I've never been before. I'm very excited. I just went for a walk around the neighborhood. And that walk, it was an incredibly pleasant walk. I was in a hammock at one point on the beach. At another point, I was reading. I was having some poke, right? I'm not in the present. I'm not taking in the fall foliage in Ann Arbor. And that's okay. I'm still deriving benefits from that. Our ability to travel in time in our mind also allows us to do things like learn from the past, right? We could think about our experiences. Hey, I did this presentation. What went well? What didn't go well? We can experience nostalgia, which has some benefits to it as well. We can think about problems that are on the horizon and reference past experiences to inform how we might deal with those future problems. So I think one important point that I would love to convey is that if you are traveling in time in your mind, thinking about the past, present, future, Welcome to the human condition. That is what our mind evolved us to do. Now, it is certainly the case that this mental time travel machine that we possess, it can break down. So if it breaks down and you're stuck in the negative past, I'd like to think of that as rumination. How do you get out of that? If it's broken down in the future about something you're, you're worried about, that's worry. Now, when the mental time travel machine is broken down, one way to deal with it is to focus on the present. And mindfulness and other practices have been shown to be quite useful in that regard. But what we've also learned is that there are ways, if we want to stick with this metaphor, of fixing the, the flat tire of that time travel machine. So you don't have to go back to the present. We can learn how to more skillfully travel in time in our mind. And a lot of the tools I talk about in the book have been shown to help people do that. So now if we fast forward to language and the voice, the inner voice, so a lot of the time that we spend thinking about our life, we spend that time thinking about our life using words. Now, this is not to say that all thinking is verbal. It isn't. We can also think in terms of pictures and images, like close your eyes and just imagine yourself on that Hawaiian beach. But we do spend a significant portion of our waking hours lost in words. We often use this term inner voice or voice in our head to capture that experience. But I like to break down what scientists mean when they use that phrase, because it, it gets thrown around in lots of different ways. Mm -hmm. The inner voice refers to our ability to silently use language to reflect on our life. So if you can talk out loud to someone else, or if you could then talk silently in your head, you've got an inner voice. I usually ask people, I put a phrase on a screen when I'm talking about this, let's say go blue for Michigan. If you can repeat that phrase in your head two times, congrats, you've just met your inner voice. You measure that we think at like 4,000 words a minute. <laughs> How is that possible? I mean, I know, and you know that when we're thinking in our head, we're thinking way faster because if we actually sit down and try to write it, we fall way, way behind. But I'm just wondering, how did they measure that? Like, <laughs> how do you track that? 
So this is one study that was performed a while ago. And what they did is they gave people verbal problems to solve. The problems could only be solved by using language, basically. So people solve those problems in their head. And then they had people articulate the strat, like write out how many words it took to, you know, they timed how long it took to solve the problem. And then they had people write out how they solved the problem. And they determined based on that information that the rate of problem solving in your head was about 4,000 words per minute. Now, there are some caveats to this. I think these are in the notes section. The caveats are, that's in my mind, an upper bound on how fast we can talk. I mean, and it really speaks to the fact that we're thinking really fast. And if you think about how that might be possible, think first of all about what you have to do to speak out loud. It's not just having that verbal cognition, but you are recruiting an entire physical apparatus to allow you to speak. You're lifting your diaphragm, you're using the muscles in your face, you're constructing full sentences. All of that takes a lot of time. So that's one piece of this. The other thing is we tend to speak in full sentences, though clearly we have had interactions with folks who probably don't always, and we ourselves sometimes don't, but usually there is a structure that our verbal discourse with others takes. And in your head, we often think in more fragmented or what some psycholinguists refer to as a more compressed form. So we're thinking in like verbal bursts that have meaning nonetheless. And so the structure that the inner voice takes can vary. It can be compressed at times, which was, I think, certainly the case in that study I referenced. But in other cases, it can be much more protracted. It can take the form of an actual conversation that we're having with ourselves. Mm -hmm. So it's quite flexible. Where I was going with this, though, is so you can talk really fast to yourself. You can also talk more slowly. And that's a great way to really highlight, I think, an important feature of the inner voice, which is it's like a Swiss army knife of the human mind. It allows you to do many different things. It's a really flexible tool. It lets you keep information active in your head. You go to the grocery store. You forgot what to buy. You remind yourself what's on your list in your head. Ketchup, tomato sauce, pasta. You can use your inner voice to simulate and plan. Like before presentations, I'll go over the talking points, what I'm going to say. I do that in my head. You can use your voice to control yourselves. Like when you're working out, come on, four more sets, and then I get to take a break. And this is one of my favorite features, just because I think it's so cool. We use our inner voice to create stories that give shape to our sense of who we are right? Like we experience adversity, turn our attention inward, and we come up with explanations for why we're experiencing the, the things we are. That's your inner voice. So it lets you do lots of different things. And it is an amazing tool. That's why you don't want to silence it. When it morphs into chatter, when you are recruiting this voice to help you, but end up getting stuck in worry and rumination, the challenge is to figure out how to get out of that state to free the inner voice up to do much more productive things. You refer to this as sort of a flight simulator, right? I love that analogy. So your working memory, it's also presumably involved in causal reasoning, right? So understanding the relationship between the past and the present, and then thinking carefully about the relationship between the present and the future. And I would imagine that because this is something that really does distinguish us from the animals, it allows us to kind of get out of being in the moment. It presumably enables us to become better planners, to think more carefully about the future. And, and from at least an economist lingo, it would allow us to reduce our discount rate, right? Where we're not dominated by the things that are right in front of us, right? And so it kind of allows us to be, I guess, more 
adult. And I think you highlight that this is one of the most important aspects of becoming an adult, right? And that that children, their verbal development is very closely tied to their emotional development. And so that when kids are, are talking to themselves, what they're really doing is helping to develop this capacity for long-term thinking and more structured causal reasoning, right? That's right. Language is intimately linked with children's development of the capacity for self-control. There's one classic account of how this works. It was first suggested by a famous Russian psychologist named Lev Vygotsky. And the idea was one of the primary ways that children learn self-control is by listening to what their parents say to them. Maya, don't eat the cookie. Danny, take your shoes off the table. And what they then do is they go into a corner or, you know, in the other room and play with dolls or toys or whatever. And they start repeating these messages to themselves. If you've been around kids, like when they're little, they actually do this out loud. So my gosh, I can't eat the cookie. It's not good. So they're rehearsing what their parents are saying or their caretakers. But then at some point, those messages get internalized in their mind and language helps do that. In the book, I I think I describe this chatter when the inner voice conspires against us as one of the big problems we face as a species. And I am not a fan of being hyperbolic. I'm a scientist by training. I don't like to exaggerate. I really mean this based on the evidence that is out there. If you just take the capacities that you just described, this ability to simulate, think causally, problem solve, We know chatter undermines that because what happens is you've only got so much attention that you can use to focus on something at any given moment in time. If all that attention is on your chatter, it is essentially wiping out temporarily this capacity to do all the things you just described. The World Health Organization recently put a price tag on this for the U.S. global economy. They looked at what the cost to the economy is of anxiety and depression in the workplace. And we know that chatter fuels those conditions. The number was $1 trillion for, I think it was 2020. And that's a number that was predicted to rise exponentially over the next 10 years. I mean, it depends on who you hang out with. You know, a trillion dollars for me with my academic brethren and big number, maybe less so for other groups. But I still think that's pretty significant in terms of what an inner voice runner, why can do to us when it comes to knocking out our ability to do our job as well. That's, of course, just one of the negative implications it can have, which I think supports this idea that, hey, this is a serious problem we need to address. And it's relevant to the workplace. It's relevant to our families. It's relevant to ourselves. It's relevant to humanity. I mean, you're discussing kind of a a miscalibration, right? So if you're the wolf boy of Aveyron, you've got no language, or I think there's been studies on people who are deaf and don't have exposure to, to sign language, right? Presumably these people lack this capacity to storify their lives. They, they lack the capacity to do the flight simulator. So like, it's such a, an important mechanism that if it goes off the rails, I guess there's two possible explanations, right? One is that evolution doesn't care if you're happy, right? And, and so they're perhaps overly negative. Or is it they're a mismatch? And I think you talk a bit about kind of the environment in which we live and and how it actually may cause this to misfire. We don't have the, the external environment that would lead us to calibrate correctly. So let's articulate more about what's bad about it, but then try to figure out, like, why do you think it is, right? I mean, why would we have evolved in such a way that we would malfunction at critical moments, right? One would think that if you are in a moment of extreme duress, 
this would be the moment where you would kind of shut this whole thing down and kind of get rid of all this. Why would we have such a mechanism? I think the first thing to keep in mind is that for most of us, most of the time, this tool, this inner voice is working well. And it's easy to lose sight of that because we're so sensitive to the negative side of life as compared to the positive. I think there have been loss aversion, all of these studies which show bad is much stronger than good. If you even look at the statistics right now on chatter during COVID, so what are the rates of anxiety, depression? They're up. I think they're over 30% compared to around like 10% before the pandemic. That's a real significant concern. And yet what it also means is that if you look to the flip side of that equation, 70% of people are actually faring really well. So I think most of the time this tool is working in our favor, but it can be unwieldy. It is not perfectly calibrated. Or for many of us, we don't know how to use it perfectly. And I think that's part of the problem. So I think there is probably this mismatch mechanism at play here. And I think the stakes when it comes to negative things are so high, right? From an evolutionary point of view, there's a reason why bad is stronger than good, that people can sometimes try to overcorrect, overfocus on the negative, And that sometimes leads us astray. And that recognizing that that's happening and having tools to bring ourselves out can really make the difference in terms of helping people wield this tool more effectively. So that's my, my explanation for why this exists and why it persists. Let's go back to just round out the negative side of things, the pain points here. So we've talked a little bit about how chatter can undermine us at work or on the ball field by consuming our attention. Another thing it can do is it can dismantle our habits, leading to something that is technically called paralysis by analysis. I love that phrase. And the idea here is that in many of our vocations and in many of the sports we play, we've developed habits. We've strung together like these different kinds of behaviors and ways of thinking into a whole that we execute automatically. So a pitcher on the mound, on the baseball field, doesn't stop to think how high they should lift their leg when they're winding up and how tightly they should grip the ball and when to release it, right? They don't do that. Instead, they've learned through years and years of practice how to fire it into the catcher's mitt in a way that will evade the, the batter. What happens when we experience chatter in about our habits? So like if I'm a pitcher and I'm, oh my God, am I going to fire a strike? Or if I'm a presenter, which I am, let me use an example closer to home. Oh my God, am I doing a good job right now? What ends up happening is chatter zooms us in on whatever we're focusing on. And so if you're zooming in on a habit, what it starts doing is breaking that habit up, effectively unlinking all the thoughts and behaviors that you have effortlessly strung together over time. Basically, when that happens, that's how you get folks like Simone Biles dropping out of the Olympics. She talked about the twisties, right? It's like the yips in, in golf, right? The yips are another, another name for it. The yips, the twisties, the waggles, lots of names. It's chatter. And so that's another way that chatter can really sink us in. It's not just athletes. I mean, think about a surgeon performing a complicated operation. Am I squeezing the scalpel tight enough? Have I protracted the skin far enough? To, I mean, we don't need to get too gory, but any domain in which you're engaged, you do habits like this is relevant. So that's another way it can undermine our performance. If we switch domains, we also know that chatter can create friction in our relationships with others. And the way this works is, when we experience chatter, we are often highly motivated to share it with others, to talk to other people. 
There are a couple of exceptions here. We tend not to talk about experiences of shame and embarrassment or certain forms of trauma. But all other things, we are usually looking for someone to communicate with. And this is true for men and women, by the way. Lots of people believe that only women like to do this. It's not supported by the data. So the rub here is you find a person to talk to about your chatter. You start going. But because the chatter often persists, you keep talking to them about it over and over again. And this can have the counterproductive effect of pushing away people we love because there's only so much a person can listen to before they've had enough themselves. So that creates friction in your relationship with that person. They start pulling away and you then start feeling rejected and isolated and lonely as a result and a vicious dynamic ensues. And so that's one way that chatter can undermine our relationships. The other pathway is when you're experiencing chatter, you're, you're usually on edge, you're negative. And what often happens there is you displace those feelings onto others. So I'm sitting in my office at home. I'm really worried about this interaction with a student I have to have. My daughter comes in and just wants to tell me about her day. I may have told her not to come in, but instead of just say, all right, sweetie, tell me about your day. Normally, the only thing I would want to do when I get home is learn about my kids. Instead of doing that, did I tell you not to come in here? Why did you do this? And they feel terrible. I feel like a crappy dad. And that's called displaced emotion. And you often see that happening with chatter too. I love how the gold standard for testing people's anxieties is public speaking. Yes. <laughs> it's probably just because professors love to uh, inflict on their experimental subjects, the kind of stuff that they have to spend a lot of time doing. But in philosophy, we talk about how the unexamined life is not worth living, right? So it's only examining and scrutinizing your, your performance or your behavior. This is a good thing, except when it's not. And so you, you kind of contrast zooming in versus zooming out and emphasize the advantages of zooming out versus zooming in, right? So there are constructive ways to reflect on what you're doing and potentially how to improve it. And then there are ways that are sort of counterproductive. What's the difference? Is zooming in, zooming out, how does it differ from inside view, outside view? There are some parallels to that. Kahneman tells this great story in Thinking Fast and Slow about this experience he had trying to develop a curriculum in Israel with some of his colleagues. And he got mired in this curriculum development for, I think it was years, and nothing ultimately ended up coming out of it. And he ended up saying the most instructive experience I've had in science, something along these lines, it's not the exact quote, but I don't think I'm exaggerating here, was that he didn't think about what he was going through from an external perspective. He wasn't able to take that outside view of what was happening. We find something very, very similar going on when it comes to people grappling with chatter and also grappling with their emotions more generally. When you experience chatter, you get stuck, zoomed in, in a tunnel vision-like manner on what you're experiencing. And when you're in that state of mind, it can often be hard to see the bigger picture, the broader perspective, which often has solutions to what we're trying to experience, to try to help us work through it. One of my favorite findings from my own research is work I did with Igor Grossman a while ago. We call this Solomon's Paradox that I think really encapsulates this phenomenon really well. It's named after the Bible's King Solomon who was famously one of the wisest people in history, historical figures. But when it came to his own life, if you actually dig into the history, he made a rash of terrible decisions about his own life, which speaks to this fact that I think we are much better at weighing in on problems when they're not happening to us. Do as I say, not as I do. 
Here's what is so cool and fascinating. We have evolved the capacity to think about ourselves from a more distance perspective. We can think about ourselves like we were focusing on someone else. And when we do that, we often drive benefits. We think more wisely, we are less emotional, and we are able to work through our chatter. And there are many, many different distancing tools that exist that I talk about in the book. So it's not a one-size-fits-all distancing solution. Lots of things that people can do. One of my favorites involves using language. And I think this is in some ways a little counterintuitive, and so I like to walk people through it, but there are cases of people essentially during difficult times using their own name to think through a problem. And many people make fun of this. Yeah, yeah. When you hear people do it publicly, like, yes, they're distancing, but that's exactly what we don't want them to do. Particularly, I mean, if you're in a relationship with someone and they start referencing themselves in the third person, or even when they use the generic you, right? Totally which speaks to the fact that there's a time and place to use all of the tools. I guess another meta point that I hope readers take away from the book, I, I tried hard to impress this, is that psychological processes and tools, more specifically, they're not good, they're valence-free, right? In the sense that a tool is useful if you use it the right way in the right situation. So take distancing. We haven't gotten into these tools, but let's imagine there's, there are tools, which there are for stepping back and thinking about your circumstances more objectively. That can be really effective when you are trying to work through a difficult problem in your mind. But when I'm hanging out with my daughters at the playground, like distancing is not what I want to do to achieve my goals of savoring those incredible experiences. I want to immerse myself there. So it is about skillfully using these tools in your life. Yeah, it's like having this dial, right? This immersion distancing dial. Things I talk about a lot in, in my workplace classes. There's a time for mindfulness. There's a time for brainstorming. There's a time for counterfactual reasoning, which is, I guess, where chatter would fit in. And, and there's a time for flow and understanding the benefits and costs of these different attentional states and when it's appropriate to kind of dial one up or dial one down is, is really a skill set that you should seek out to be effective and also to be happy, right? I think you've laid that up beautifully. I mean, I think the hope from the science side and the practical side behind what I do, not the book, but like our research, and I think the field more generally is, hey, let's come up with a scientific blueprint that explains how the emotional mind works. And if you have that map, if you understand the mechanics of the mind in that way, then it becomes possible to really harness your mind to its fullest potential. It's like, mechanics, you name the car. I remember growing up, there was this like local mechanic and my grandfather would bring the car in to the mechanic mm -hmm. and something wasn't working. And the mechanic would like take it for a drive and listen to it and like put his hand on the, by the steering wheel and listen for vibrations. And then because he knew about how every single. The click and clack. Yeah, exactly. Because he knew all of the, the intricacies behind how the car worked. He was able to fix anything. What percentage would we put right now in our knowledge of the human mind and our understanding of how it works? It'd be a pretty low percentage, much, much better than what it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. But there's still a lot which we have to uncover. And I'm optimistic that science will help us do that. And I think that's what you call wisdom, right? You talk about wisdom in the book, right? I mean, how many psychology books? I mean, Barry Schwartz, of course, is a big proponent of the study of wisdom. But wisdom, I think for you, is really this ability to not only kind of understand the mechanics of the mind, but to understand the appropriateness of 
different ways of thinking for different circumstance. Can a psychologist really talk about wisdom? I thought a lot about this idea of the impartial spectator, right? So Adam Smith and other philosophers would, would talk about this. And I think they were talking about it in part as kind of a moral judge, not just sort of a practical advisor. And I think wisdom has at least some normativity, right? Some idea like, hey, this is kind of the way you ought to be or the way you should be in, in any given circumstance. Do you see yourself as being in that role? I mean, the philosopher was originally supposed to be thought of as, as a doctor of the soul. Do you think of yourself that way? My wife and daughters would certainly not think of me as Dr. Wisdom, which goes back to probably Solomon's paradox, right? Do as I say, not as I do. I think the concept of wisdom is fascinating. And I, and I think of wisdom as it's different from intelligence insofar as it's really about the ability to skillfully navigate the social challenges of life. I do think some of the research we do has implications for understanding of how to promote wisdom, how to promote wise reasoning. And it does connect to some moral work. I'll talk maybe a little bit about that. So we find consistently in studies that getting a person to take a step back through various tools, whether they be distant self-talk or other distancing techniques, helps people recognize the constantly changing nature of the world. It helps people realize the limits of their own knowledge. It helps promote intellectual humility. The notion that, hey, I don't actually know everything, which is a feature, according to many traditions, of wisdom, right? I mean, like, think about recognizing that you don't know everything. This can be very useful for helping you seek out more information to solve a problem, right? It doesn't mean that you just say, I know nothing. It means, hey, there's more to it potentially than I'm currently aware. We also know that getting people to adopt that distance perspective helps evil perspective take, put themselves in someone else's shoes. And so there are different features of wisdom that we know distancing promotes. It also promotes more objectivity. So more recently, we've gotten interested in some moral psychological work in my lab. And really work that marries moral theory with social life. And I'll make that concrete as follows. Several years ago, I had a student who was an, a non-traditional student in the sense that he, we first started working together when he was in his 40s. He had spent his entire life in the military. His name's Walt Soden. He's now a colonel. And basically, he was really interested in moral psychology. But after reviewing the literature, he said, you know, he did something strange here, like, all these studies on these trolley cars and bridges, but none of these studies take into account the fact that sometimes you have to make moral judgments about people you know and love. Like in the military, he said to me, we're trained to do two things. Like he worked at West Point for a while, abide by the principles of the constitution, right? That was sacred. But another sacred value is never betray a brother in arms. What happens when those conflict? What happens when your fellow soldier actually does something to betray the Constitution? Turns out we didn't have a scientific guide to steer us to tell us in that situation, how does the mind reconcile this paradox? We call this this loyalty paradox. And so we've done now dozens of studies on this. And one of the things we've learned is probably not surprising if you present people with dilemmas where you observe someone else commit a crime. The closer you are to the person who you witness commit the crime, the less likely you are to report them to an authority figure. We've shown that this behavior is rooted in our expectations of the world. We don't expect people we know to do bad things. And, and so you get this bias, which is a really strong bias emerging within milliseconds. We document this using neuroscience techniques. What's somewhat surprising is 
we find that the strength of this bias, the strength to protect close others compared to strangers, it actually gets stronger as the severity of the crime increases. So as the stakes go up and you shift from taking a Wi-Fi password from someone who you shouldn't have, right? Maybe something many of us have done. I shouldn't incriminate myself, but mea culpa, I've done it, right? It's being recorded, I realize. To something I've never done, which is like, you know, grand larceny or, or a Me Too-like offense, a significant one. You are more likely to protect in those circumstances. And which I think speaks quite powerfully to many of the social ills that we see playing out in contemporary society. You know, Jerry Sandusky and other the Larry Nasser stuff where you had these people who were committing these heinous crimes. And we turns out people knew about this for years, but they didn't do anything about it because of the relationship. And so on the one hand, this actually speaks to distance, right? Because it's about relational distance. If our sense of self doesn't overlap with the person who commits a crime, we're much more likely to report their behavior. But what we also saw is you can intervene and getting people to think about what should not I do? What should Ethan do in this situation? Adopting that objective stance reduces this bias. You had mentioned moral psychology, so you got me talking about a fun pet project. Yeah, well, I mean, the general insight is that if you say, what would somebody similarly situated do, right? Which I think is the Kahneman and, and Lavallo insight, right? You're going to get better decision-making. Yeah. What I found interesting is that the normal application for that insight, at least the way I apply it in my classes is to cure people of an over-optimism, right? So the belief that nothing can go wrong. And I think what you're pointing out is that it's equally valuable as a perspective to get rid of the overly pessimistic bias that you might have where you're obsessing about the things that could go wrong, right? So it's really a tool for better calibration and the valence is just a function of the setting. So I think one way to misinterpret the book chatter is to think, oh, this is all about getting rid of pessimism. This is all about getting rid of negative thoughts. I think it's really more about how do we make our thoughts more accurate, right? Or better calibrated, which sometimes might mean to downregulate the excessively optimistic or excessively unrealistic aspects of our inner voice. Yeah, completely agree. And that's very much compatible with, with work from my side of things, not in the behavioral economics sphere, but in the emotion and self-control literature. We find that when you distance, when you adopt that external viewpoint, it brings you back to some baseline, right? So if you're distancing from negative, you're less negative. If you're distancing from a positive, you're less positive, which mm -hmm. also, again, speaks to the importance of understanding the why when it comes to all these tools. And the reason why I really tried to emphasize that in the book, right? Because it's not that distancing is across the board what you always want to be doing. Absolutely not. You want to know when it makes sense to distance versus immerse and then deliberately shift into those different states. Now, you also talk a bit about the now discredited hydraulic theory of the emotions, right? But I think still is among ordinary people, it's still an article of faith, right? This idea that if you talk things out, you're going to somehow make things better. I was wondering if you could dive into that. And then I was also wondering if you could talk about how that relates to relationship dynamics. One of the things that most of us are taught in the world of active listening is to always talk in the I, right? And use first person singular. And yet I think a lot of what you're advocating is this kind of iliism, which is to speak of yourself in, in the third person, right? So how does somebody integrate those different insights about 
communicating emotions and thinking about emotions. Let's start with the last part of that question first. It's the easiest one to address, or not easiest, but quickest one, which is when it comes to ileism or thinking about your life in the third person, that's been studied. All the studies I talk about really look at that in the context of self-reflection, really thinking about your own life. When you're experiencing chatter, trying to give yourself advice like you would coach a friend through a problem and use your name to help you do it. When you're communicating with someone else, all the dynamics shift when it comes to some of these pronouns and it gets much more complicated. It's not just about using your name versus I, and there's a time and place to use I. I don't know of any study yet that suggests that you should refer to yourself with your name in a conversation with someone else. I wouldn't predict that that would be beneficial. But there, there are other ways of subtly distancing through language. For example, using we is really interesting, and, and we're doing research on that now. When you use the word we, that is bringing your communication partner into your universe, right? Using the generic you, talking about an experience, but using the word you to refer to people in general, that has a feature of pushing the experience away from you, but also bringing your communication partner in to the conversation that can be useful too. So there's a lot of dynamics at play there. But let's go back and talk about the bigger issue, do some myth busting, and then explain why. So as you said, lots of people think that when you're experiencing chatter, the thing you want to do is find someone to express your emotions, to just get it out, vent your feeling. This is an idea that's been with us for a very long time. Aristotle talked about it. Freud then popularized it. Since then, every kind of self-help book mentions this, more or less. William James is kind of the leading light of the alternative view, right? He among many others, actually, more recently. So actually, the leading light, I would say, in more contemporary science is a Belgian psychologist by the name of Bernard Rimet, who has done some wonderful, wonderful work over several decades. And what Rimet looked at was he wanted to know, first and foremost, when you're experiencing intense emotions of the sort that characterize chatter, what do you do? And the first thing he found was you find someone to talk about these things with. He looked at this cross-culturally. He showed it was true of men and women. Really, like, emotions chatter. They act as jet fuel that propels us to find someone to chat, which is really interesting, small side note, when you think about social media and the opportunities that that now gives us to share our feelings with others relatively easily. So part one of Rimei's findings was... Hey, we talk about our feelings when they're intense. But what he then found was that most of the conversations that we have with other people about our chatter don't actually make us feel better. And so what we've learned over time is that simply venting your emotions, expressing your feelings, if that's all you do in a conversation, that can be really good for strengthening the friendship bonds between two people. It's good to know that there's someone out there who's willing to listen, connect with me, listen actively. But if all you do is go over what you're feeling, if all you do, Greg, is reflect, oh, really? That sounds awful. What did you do next? What happened? If that's all that happens, that leads mm -hmm. to something mm -hmm. called co-rumination, which is we're just ping-ponging back and forth about all the negativity. And you end up at the end of the conversation feeling close and connected to the person you just spoke to. But you're still as just as upset as when you started, sometimes you're even more upset because you've dredged up every last emotional detail. So importantly, this doesn't mean you shouldn't talk to other people. What it means is you should find someone else to talk to. You should spend a little bit of time 
talking about what you're feeling. It is important for the person you're communicating with to learn about what you experienced, what you went through. But ideally, at a certain point in the conversation, the person you're communicating with starts nudging you to think differently about this. They start trying to get you to broaden your perspective. Because the experience isn't happening to that other person, they are in an ideal position to coach us through what is the appropriate way or the best potential way of responding here. And that's really the formula for harnessing the power of other people to help us. And so knowing about this science, I think, can be really, really helpful because what it does is it allows us to be very deliberate about who we go to for support. So when I'm experiencing chatter, I think really carefully, who in my life is good at listening, but then also helping me broaden my perspective? There aren't a lot of people who do that for me, but there are enough, like three or four. Those are the people I go to. There are many other people who I can easily, they would happily take the time to listen. I don't talk to them about my feelings. A lot of them are my relatives. If you're listening, it's not you in particular. But, you know, like it just doesn't help. It just makes it worse. And so I think it allows us to be deliberate about who we seek out support from. And on the flip side, when someone comes to me for help, I'm deliberate about not just listening, but at a certain point in the conversation, and sometimes it's a little messy figuring out what that point is, I start trying to help them reframe it. You reference this as being like a little bit of Spock and a little bit of Kirk, right? Yeah, <laughs> you got to balance these things. I want to move to sort of the, the more macroscopic issue, which is if everybody is suffering from a surfeit of chatter, and if we think that maybe chatter is a bigger problem than it has been in, in the past, this would presumably either be due to environmental factors that are stimulating its production or kind of the absence of environmental buffers, which could downregulate it, right? So what are some of the environmental factors that are stimulating the production of chatter? And, and what are some of the in environmental deficiencies that are getting in the way of us downregulating it? First, I would say, I think chatter is one of the age old issues we've struggled with. I think it is a timeless question that's been around with us for probably as long as we've had brains of the sort that we now have, possibly even before that in some of our more primitive relatives. I recently came across, I was doing some research and found that the oldest form of surgery, I think it was called trepanation. It involves basically creating a, a whole cell and then damaging the brain. The oldest form of surgery, it was a form of surgery used as far as I, the resource I checked, it wasn't just homo sapiens, but went back before us. And it was used in part for dealing with problems of the emotional mind. You just say schizophrenia is sort of a, an extreme version of chatter. I mean, it's an inner voice, but it's no longer you that's talking, but it's something that you perceive to be another. Yeah, I think a more extreme version of chatter, as I describe it in the book, is probably clinical forms of anxiety and depression, where the inner monologue is looping over and over. But in those, in those conditions, typically, you're still well aware that the chatter is coming from you. Schizophrenia, there are a lot of other things that are happening. In part, you're hearing voices, literally, that you think are not coming from your own mind. For example, right now, I just heard my mom tell me to go clean up my room. Like, I can do that. <laughs> I can simulate that experience, like, very easily. I heard her voice. Right. Really crystal clear fidelity. But I know that I generated it. The difference is that in a schizophrenic, in some schizophrenic individuals, the thought is like their mom is actually in their head or controlling them in some way. So it's a little different. 
But all of this is to say, I think these are age-old questions that we have struggled with. You look at the Bible, I mean, there's problems of chatter throughout the story of Adam and Eve and the apple and the snake. You could put these in chatter terms, but what are the environmental factors that trigger this? Well, we know that a lack of certainty and a lack of control are building blocks for chatter. And it just so happens we're living through a time right now characterized by those conditions. So you don't know what's going to happen next and you don't have control over what's going to happen next. That can really provoke chatter. When I hear about this, you described the experience of your grandmother in the forest of Poland. I mean, the stressors that we experience, as bad as they might be, right, like a toxic boss, right? And I've had a toxic person in my work environment that I've had to deal with, and it's extremely stressful. It kind of pales in comparison with what our ancestors had to face. It seems like they had rituals. I mean, we all have kind of rituals, and you talk a lot about rituals and the importance of ritual, which I found fascinating. But I think maybe the the library of rituals that you had available to you in the past may have been richer, right? There's sort of a social inventory of rituals like rosary beads or, or whatever. Yeah. And now it's like you got to make up your own rituals, so to speak. Yeah, I think of rituals as an ancient chatter fighting tool. It's a tool that our cultures give us. And I think it's probably a tool that we've stumbled on. I don't think when the ancient Hindus or Christians or Jews were coming up with ritualistic practices, they were doing random assignment experiments to determine that they worked. Instead, I think ancient humanity stumbled on the value of engaging in, in behaviors that were under our control and infused with meaning, which is what a ritual is. It's a set of behaviors that is rigid. You do the same thing every single time, and it has some connection to a broader goal. The exact behaviors that compose a ritual don't really matter. I think that's really interesting. Well, you described these athletes and their rituals of always putting their water bottle in the same spot, reciting some mantra before they get into a game. Yeah, people come up with all sorts of rituals. I mean, take Jews and Hindus, like, both have mourning rituals, like mourning, death of a loved one, huge chatter-provoking event. Jews dress in black, don't cut their hair. Hindus shave their heads and dress in white, right? But, but in both cases, like the exact opposite behaviors, but they're doing it to regulate. What we know about rituals is that they're kind of like a, a chatter-fighting cocktail. They help us in a variety of ways. One thing they do is they allow us to do something that is under our control. And when we're experiencing chatter, we often feel like we don't have control right? Our minds in control. And so you can compensate for that experience by doing something that is rigid. That's also why cleaning up and organizing your physical spaces. There's like compensatory control, right? You refer to it. That's right. That's the technical term, compensatory control. Other people call it procrastinating. (laughs) This is the value of the science, right? Like when I was writing chatter, before I came across some of this work, I haven't done this work myself, but I reviewed it. Before I got to that chapter, Whenever I'd be experiencing a little bit of chatter, oh my God, is this good? Or is that, am I going to make the deadline? I would like just clean up my office and wash the dishes. Greg, I never wash the dishes if I don't have to. Your family's like, write another book. <laughs> well, you know, I, I joke. My, my wife, I think, sometimes wants me to be in like a, a moderate chatter state because the house is always looking so good. So that's another reason that that helps us. Rituals also, though, we often do them with other people. So there's a communal element at times, gives us a sense of social connection. And they're often hard to do, which can take our attention away from our chatter also. So they they work through a few different pathways. I just think it is remarkable that if you look at these different cultural institutions that exist, that have been with us for so long, they give us a lot of tools in the form of rituals for managing our emotions. So it's kind of co-evolved, right? 
this inner voice has evolved in order to help us plan and understand causation and so forth. But when I read about these rituals, a lot of them, and I was reading about Rafael Nadal, and I thought, that seems like, I think DSM would have him as OCD, right? I mean, isn't this kind of what OCD is, like when you take these rituals to an extreme? It goes back to this idea that all of these tools can be taken to an extreme, and if taken to an extreme can be unproductive. I think it was Camus the Stranger. I mean, that book was about a killer, if I remember it correctly. And he, lots of distancing there, totally objective, always, which of course isn't the kind of distancing we talk about in the book. But nonetheless, the idea is that these are tools, tools that if wielded properly in the right context and to the right degree can be very beneficial. But if wielded improperly can be destructive. Like think about a hammer. A hammer in the right hands builds homes, fixes things that are broken. A hammer in the wrong hands, like my own, major source of destruction. So these are all tools and we need to know how to use them well. So one of the things I I found interesting, you had a whole discussion about placebos. This is one area that I've been fascinated with my entire life. But the thing about placebos is that placebos, they kind of lose effectiveness over time because it's kind of a conditioned response and there has to be some memory of the active ingredient, so to speak. But rituals don't lose their effectiveness over time. They just keep working. And in fact, they might even work better the more you use them. So is it kind of a different mechanism at work than kind of the placebo mechanism you described? Yeah, the placebo mechanism is a different mechanism. So there might be a placebo element to rituals in the sense that If you think the ritual is going to help you, that maybe make it even more effective. But a lot of the rituals we engage in, I don't think people go into those rituals thinking they're going to be wildly beneficial. For example, when I organized and cleaned when I was experiencing chatter, I didn't do that because I think it was going to help me feel better. It was just something that the action of doing that itself, because it was under my control, led to some, had some anxiolytic effects. Placebos are very much about expectations and whether we think they're going to be helpful. Placebos, they can, I would argue, have some enduring benefit if you continue to believe that doing something is going to make you feel better. But if you begin to show some doubt, then they don't work as well. Right. And I think you you talk a bit about how if you interpret something as a challenge as opposed to interpreting it as a threat, the same exact external experience, you're going to be able to interact with it differently and your probability of success is going to be different, presumably because your stress response, the fight or flight response is probably going to get in the way of the thing you're trying to accomplish, right? That's right. I think this is a very powerful reframe and it's an easy one to do. So when we put people in stressful situations, we tend to ask ourselves two questions. What's required of me and can I do it? If you engage in that computation and you think, can't do it, that elicits a threat response that has a negative profile. It affects your physiology negatively. It also makes you perform worse. If you answer those questions, I can do it, that elicits a much more adaptive response. And so it really is about just changing the way you think about things. What we know about belief, and this is relevant to placebo, is that belief is a powerful tool for managing our chatter and managing ourselves. But it's a finicky thing because we have evolved in a way that it's hard sometimes to change our beliefs. And I think it actually, from an evolutionary point of view, that makes really good sense. Like I'm of a proponent of, I think negative emotions are actually functional in the right dosages. We've evolved the capacity to experience negative stuff for a reason, it surges well. I want to experience a little anger when someone encroaches on my space. 
And pain, of course. Pain is incredibly valuable. Right, and pain as well. If you don't experience pain, you don't pull your arm away from the burning stove. What makes these negative emotions useful is that they are negative. We're motivated to avoid that pain. So what would happen if you had free reign over your mind and the belief system and you could reinterpret anything you wanted to never experience any negative stuff? We probably do that because we don't like negativity. So consciously, you try to reframe it all the time. And if you did that, you'd be in big trouble because like people who are born without the ability to experience pain, they die young and that's what would probably happen to us. And so the brain has evolved in a way where we have this ability to consciously reframe our experiences to reduce its negative impact. But there are lots of safety valves on that capacity that make it kind of hard to control 100%. And I think a lot of the work that we're doing in science right now is figuring out how to remove some of those safety valves temporarily to give us a little bit more control. Well, one of the last things you talk about in the book about kind of managing chatter or chatter management tool comes from the field of environmental psychology. I found this whole area fascinating, right? Because it's about biophilia. It's about how the environment in which you surround yourself is going to impact your chatter, impact your, your stress response. And, and you talk about how a nature walk, or I think in Japan, they have these things called nature baths, yeah. can fundamentally change the amount of negative introspection that you're engaging in. And I was wondering, you know, why do you suppose this is? And I think a lot of people say it's because nature is less of a threatening environment. Yeah, we can do much better than that explanation based on the science. So how does nature help? There are at least two pathways mechanistically that we've learned that explain how it can help. One has to do with attention. Chatter consumes our attention. And that's part of why it can be so debilitating. Nature, if it's a safe natural setting, not where you're worried about grizzlies coming to get you necessarily, we're surrounded by interesting things that draw our attention to. Interesting things that our attention is drawn to. Now, we're not carefully like scrutinizing those things in most cases. I'm not trying to make sense of the geometrical structure of the leaves on my walk. I'm just kind of taking it in. That gives our attention the ability to restore, which is very helpful for dealing with chatter down the road. The other thing that nature does is it gives us opportunities to experience the emotion of awe, which is this emotion we experience when we're in the presence of something vast and indescribable. And nature is filled with those kinds of things like incredible sunset, a tree that's been there for hundreds of years and so forth. What we've learned is that when we experience that emotion of awe, that leads to what we call shrinking of the self. We feel smaller when you're contemplating something vast and indescribable. And when we feel smaller, so do our worries. So those are two pathways mechanistically that nature helps. It's not just about feeling less threat. Well, Ethan, we barely touched on the book. We also barely touched on your other work involving social pain and rejection. And, and there's so much other work that you have out there. This book is, I, I say this is a self-help book, but I say that in the best way, in the way that good works of philosophy are also kind of self-help books. I help you to understand a bit about the chatter that you're experiencing, but far more broad implications. I appreciate you joining me today and hope to chat again soon. I would love it. This was such a fun conversation, Greg. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.